Hey everyone, Jonah here. And Kate. This week, we have something really special for you guys, because this is actually our 100th episode of the podcast. We launched CNA Newsroom way back in November 2018, and at the time, we really had no idea what this podcast would grow into. Yeah, when we first started it, we thought it would take the form of a news commentary podcast. But soon we realized that the stories that we were covering were just way more powerful coming directly from the source, which is where we got our tagline, the people behind the headlines. In honor of our 100th episode, we wanted to share a couple segments from throughout the years that we really believe showcase what our podcast has become. To kick things off, we're going to take you back to episode 24. This is kind of a special episode because it was among the samples we sent in our entry for the 2020 Catholic Press Awards. Which we won, by the way. Yeah. 2020 was a rough year, but this was definitely a highlight for me. The judges cited this episode specifically as particularly powerful and emotionally resonant. And so, without further ado, here's CNA's former deputy editor-in-chief, Michelle LaRosa, with 70 Times 7. Natalie Pureno is a Rwandan woman of Tutsi ethnicity. Her story is one of pain, loss, and the healing that only comes from faith in Christ. Growing up in Rwanda, Natalie's family faced challenges. They spent time in a refugee camp after the 1959 revolution. They faced hunger and a few of her siblings were forced to quit school and work to help feed the family. But she says her memories of her childhood were still filled with joy, surrounded by her parents and 11 siblings, and sustained by a strong Catholic faith. We are not as poor as we are in Western countries. We had everything. We had each other. We had God. What else do do you want? In particular, Natalie is grateful for her parents. She recalls how they were generous with those in need, even when they struggled to make ends meet, how they led the family in praying a rosary every evening, and how they filled her childhood with love. I grew up in a a loving environment, in spite of civil wars. I don't know if you, you can put those two together. I think you can. Love can conquer hate. And that's what I had, unconditional love. Natalie would go on to marry an American who worked for Catholic Relief Services and to move to the United States. She was living in Baltimore in April of 1994 when she heard the news that the Rwandan president's plane had been shot down. This became the spark that ignited decades of ethnic tension dating back to Belgian colonialism. Members of the Hutu ethnic majority took up machetes and turned on their minority Tutsi neighbors, friends, and colleagues. In the 100-day genocide that followed, it is estimated that nearly one million people were killed. In the early days of the genocide, Natalie made frantic, long-distance phone calls to Rwanda, desperately hoping to hear that her family members were okay. 
but when phone service was eventually shut down in the country, she could only follow along with the news as the death toll continued to rise. Talking about helpless, I, it's beyond that. I don't have a vocabulary for what I felt. Maybe guilt for being safe and they were not. I felt if maybe if I was there, since I'm younger and I, I'm, I felt like I, was, I, I knew some tricks, I could have fooled them, that at least we would have a few people who survived. Natalie was actually supposed to be in Rwanda for Easter that year. That was the plan. She would go home to Rwanda and then bring her mother back to the United States to live with her and her family in Baltimore. Natalie's father passed away before the genocide, so her mom had agreed to come and live with them. I called her on February 26, 1994. I said, Mom, I'm coming at Easter. No, don't come. I said, why? Why don't you save money and come at Christmas? I said, Mama, you keep pushing this. I need you to come. Oh, I did this and this and this with your siblings. Let me, I have a few things I have to finalize. I said, how is the political situation, Mama? Oh, the cows are good. The harvest is good. She will change subject. <laughs> God bless my mother. Well... A month and a half later, she was killed. She was trying to protect me from being slaughtered. Natalie's mom was killed in the genocide. So were seven of her 11 siblings and dozens of nieces, nephews, and cousins. In total, she lost more than 100 family members. The year following the genocide was a blur for Natalie. She was numb with trauma and guilt. The nightmares were frequent. She found herself in denial, wondering if her loved ones had somehow survived, even when she knew they were dead. She had to stop going to Mass for about a year. During the consecration, graphic images would flood her mind of the bodies piled up in Mass graves, of a church back home where people were murdered, blood staining the altar cloths. When you have a visual mind, you see every detail. Natalie prayed the rosary daily and told God that she loved him. Slowly, she found healing and was able to return to church. But the details of her mother's death still haunted her. Her cousin was there, and recounted the scene to her later. They were running around, hiding in the swamps, with their rosaries, with their little Bible in the photo albums of their children, (laughs) because they were hoping to survive. She ran into this guy who was staying at my mom's house, because he he worked in my parents' field. And my mom told her, she was, oh, I know this guy, it's my kid. And she goes, oh, my son, it's you. But the man was a Hutu. He told Natalie's mom, old woman, don't waste my time. And my mom had such a great sense of humor. And she goes, my child, you too? The man asked Natalie's mom if she was ready to die. They were surrounded by the bodies of her children and grandchildren. Natalie's mom asked to pray with him first. 
after that. Mom had a special way to hug her children by just pinching you and look at you and touch your cheeks and say, my child, he did that to the killer. I was not happy. I said, Mom, you're about to be killed. You're giving him our hug. But it took me years to actually forgive my mother for calling the killers her children and grandchildren her child. But she did forgive her mom and her mom's killers and herself. Today, 25 years after the genocide, Natalie still bears the pain of losing the family that she loved so much. It's every day it's like it was yesterday, Michelle. She finds peace by reading verses of the Bible every day. Among her favorites is Philippians 1.21. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To many people, this makes no sense. But to me, it does. Because when he died, he promised a place in his father's kingdom. That's the only way I can live in this life. It's through Christ's suffering and Mary's suffering and pain and the word of God. I will invite the entire world, you don't have to listen to me, to find Jesus. Without Jesus, how do you find hope? How do you find peace? How do you dare believe in forgiveness? Natalie still feels the loss of her mother and her siblings, her cousins and nieces and nephews, every single day. But she trusts that they are with God, and she will be reunited with them one day. I'm sorry I lost them, but I didn't lose my faith. It's everything. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Michelle LaRosa. This next segment we have for you guys is a little more lighthearted. We chose it because we produced it back in March of 2020 at the start of the coronavirus pandemic. At that point, we, like almost everyone in the U.S., had to adapt to working from home. And, of course, that meant producing our podcast from home as well. We had already produced a story about parishes adapting to the coronavirus, so we wanted to tell something a little different. We wanted to show another side of the pandemic. We decided to showcase some of the creative ways people were processing stay-at-home orders— and finding ways to make the extra time spent at home more productive and more positive. And so, please enjoy this segment from episode 63. On March 21st, at a time when anxiety of quarantine was settling in for much of the United States, Comedian Steve Martin posted a video on Twitter of himself playing a tune on his banjo. He was wearing a uh, uh, a baseball cap, uh, jacket, winter jacket, uh, casually dressed, sunglasses, and he played a lovely tune uh, on his banjo uh, outside among the trees. 
Steve Martin's video clip went viral, with over 30 million views and counting. He captioned it, Banjo Balm. The clip caught the attention of Princeton professor Robert George, one of the most respected Catholic intellectuals in the U.S. Professor George is himself also an accomplished bluegrass musician. So as soon as I saw that, I invited my wife, who's also working uh, uh, from home, uh, to step outside with me. I uh, put on a jacket like Steve Martin's jacket and a baseball cap like Steve Martin. Uh, and I uh, put on a pair of sunglasses. I don't think I've worn sunglasses for 25 years, but I found a pair. Uh, and uh, we went out among the trees. We live in a in a wooded section. We went out among the trees, and she, so she videoed me uh, uh, playing playing my banjo. Professor George posted his reply to Steve Martin's video with the caption, Two can play at that game. So I, I considered that sort of answering uh, Steve Martin's uh, implicit challenge to a banjo duel. <laughs> Dozens of people replied to Professor George's post, thanking him for the music and telling him that it made them smile. Banjo is a very cheering instrument. It's hard to be sad when you, uh, when you hear banjo music. So he thought, why not post a little banjo video every day? So I uh, decided I'd just uh, make it a daily thing, part of my daily routine to to dress up in my outfit and uh, put on my sunglasses and uh, and do a different banjo tune every day. For Professor George, bluegrass music isn't just a genre he enjoys, it's also part of his heritage. He's the grandson of West Virginia coal miners. Uh, I call it Appalachian classical music. I grew up in the hills of West Virginia, born and bred there, and uh, I grew up playing bluegrass music, banjo and guitar. Uh, I used to play a lot of banjo uh, when I was a boy, and I've kind of uh, kept it going through my adult life. The base of it all is in Earl Scruggs style, uh, what's called three-finger picking. Uh, but I've integrated elements of uh, many of the other great banjo uh, players of the past and present into my own style of playing. Professor George said he hopes his videos will help to inspire people confined to their homes to pick up their own instruments. You've had that guitar in the closet since uh, since the 60s or the 70s when you were a kid. Uh, but you haven't had it out in, uh, in ages. Well, get it out. It's a bit like riding a bicycle or swimming. You know, once you do it, you don't ever really forget it. Uh, learn a new thing. That's It doesn't have to be going back and recovering something old. There may be something you've always wanted to do, but never really thought you had time for it. Like, let's say, learning the piano. There are wonderful online lessons. Uh, this technology is a great blessing. It, it, it also has its downside, of course, technology. Uh, but it's also a great blessing. And among the blessings are musical lessons on just about every instrument you can, uh, any instrument you can imagine. As big an advocate for music as Professor George is, he also has other suggestions for ways people can spend their additional leisure time. And that was a wonderful opportunity for a reevaluation of things, thinking about what's what's really important and meaningful and and uh, and what isn't. 
Of course, I think it's also important for people to tend to their interior lives, their their spiritual lives. Very often we don't have as much time as we'd like for, for prayer, and maybe we just manage it at mealtimes and then on our knees at, at bedtime. Well, we're at home. There's an extra five minutes, an extra 10 minutes uh, in the course of a day. How about just some quiet prayer time? Or how about reading the Bible? We Catholics in particular don't read the Bible enough. Our evangelical Protestant friends can teach us something there. The Bible is a wonderful devotional uh, uh, tool, and, uh, and we should read the Bible, get to know the Bible. Here's an opportunity. We should look at this crisis we're going through, not only as a crisis, it is that, uh, not only for its dangers, it has many dangers, but also for the opportunities that it presents. Let's seize those opportunities. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. We'll be right back after this short break. Don't go away. Smart speakers help with a lot these days. Did you know you can use your smart speaker to hear the top stories of the day from a Catholic perspective? On Google Home, all you have to do is walk up to your speaker and say, Hey Google, play Catholic news. Here's the latest news. Welcome to your Catholic Daily News Briefing. If you have an Alexa, it's pretty much the same. Just say, Alexa, open Catholic news. Welcome back to the latest news from Catholic News Agency. Go to catholicnewsagency.com slash smart speakers for more information. We chose this last segment partly because it's from one of our most popular episodes ever, and for good reason. This episode is called I Raised a Saint. It's about Carlo Acutis, the first millennial ever to be beatified by the Catholic Church. We actually created this episode before Carlo's beatification in 2020, and since then, we've just seen interest in Carlo exploding, especially among young people. Carlo would have turned 30 this year. He was a computer whiz. He had a great love for the Eucharist. If you haven't heard of Carlo before, you'll definitely enjoy learning all about him in this next segment. And so, here's the segment from episode 23, in which I interviewed Carlo's mother, Antonia. Everything was advanced with Carlo, everything, you know. He started to, to say the first word at three months. Five months, five months, he used to speak, Mama, where are you? Mama. Since he was the child, he was particularly generous and very open to people. He used to say hello to everybody when we were going to the street, he used to say a lot to, I mean, it was very, very open. But what really set Carlo apart from a very young age was his deep faith. Since he was uh, three, four years old, he showed a a big interest in uh, Christ, uh, in the um, Holy Holy Virgin, 
when we used to go to do a walk outside, he wanted always to enter inside the church to say hello to Jesus and to to send kisses to the to the cross. Antonia also remembers Carlo picking flowers to place before the Virgin Mary. So it was really very, very special. Antonia says she's not sure what or who initially inspired Carlo's love for Jesus. Carlo once had a babysitter from Poland who was Catholic. That babysitter would sometimes read the Bible to Carlo, or she'd read him the stories of the saints. One thing is for certain, though. Carlo was not inspired by his parents' example, at least early on. I was not the ideal uh, model of a Catholic mother. Both Antonia and her husband were raised Catholic, but for Antonia, the faith was always more cultural than personal. Even if I did the first Holy Communion and then went to Mass, then the Confirmation and I went to Mass, and then when I got married, I went another time to Mass. I was quite, uh, you know, I was quite ignorant in the things. Antonia asked for advice from a friend of hers who was a faithful Catholic. The friend connected Antonia with a priest who encouraged her to begin to study the Catholic faith. So she enrolled in a local theology program. So little by little, I started to to get closer to the church. To, I, I started to go again to Mass. And uh, this was actually because of Carlo, no? Carlo, for me, was a sort of little savior. A few years later, a priest Antonia met through her studies asked her to volunteer as a youth catechist at his parish in Milan. Antonia agreed with the condition that she could bring her six-year-old son Carlo because she didn't want to leave him home alone. The priest met Carlo and decided Carlo was prepared to make his first communion early at seven years old. After receiving his first communion, Carlo became even more devoted to Jesus. Since then, Carlo never missed to go each day to Mass, to do Holy Communion, and to do um, Eucharistic Adoration, either before or after Mass. And when Antonia says Carlo never missed daily Mass, she's not joking. Their family would travel often. And she says Carlo would always find a Catholic church close to their hotel, where he could go for daily Mass. Jesus was the center of his day. Antonia says Carlo was a very happy child, who was well-known and well-liked in their community. Priests and nuns used to stop Antonia from time to time and tell her that God most certainly had a special plan for Carlo. He was very smart for his age and had a particular knack for computers. Antonia remembers buying Carlo university-level textbooks on computer programming when Carlo was only eight or nine years old. And uh, I used to read this uh, C, C++, uh, Ubuntu, all these programs by himself, and he used to create programs, I mean, because nobody teach him. Antonia remembers Carlo would pretend he was a computer scientist. And as he grew, he began experimenting with video cameras and video editing. He'd record videos of the family pets. They had two dogs and two cats. Carlo even taught himself editing an animation software, making his own 3D animations. 
and he even blogged. The skill that he had, I think it was a gift of God. He was also a normal child, he used to play with the PlayStation. <laughs> so, but he imposed himself to play once a week, only for one hour, because he, wanted to, he didn't want to become a slave of these uh, technological uh, um, games, etc. He wanted to be, uh, to, to be, to be free, you know. When Carlo was 11, he received the Sacrament of Confirmation. And soon after, he began to help with the catechism classes for other children at his parish. But Carlo soon realized something he found very troubling. He found that most of the children he was working with didn't understand the Mass because they never went to Mass. Carlo was astonished about this. For him, it was the most important things. Now remember, Carlo made a point to never miss daily mass and daily adoration. I mean, he used to say, I mean, when you go to a rock concert, you see thousands of people or a football match or when there is a, the, the last phone which is released, there are queues in front of the shops. But I don't see this, this queue of people in front of the tabernacle. So he realized that People don't understand the importance of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. Carlo wondered how he could help people realize the importance of the Eucharist and come to love the Eucharist as he did. Then he put his computer programming skills to work and created a website documenting Eucharistic miracles around the world. That website is still available today, and it was the inspiration behind an exhibit on Eucharistic miracles that continues to travel around the world. The exhibition of Carlo went all over the United States, Canada, Central America, Australia, Asia, India, Europe, because they wanted everybody to love Jesus, to understand the importance of the sacrament. When Carlo was 15, he got sick, and everyone assumed it was just the flu. His classmates were all uh, ill with the flu. So everybody thought that he had the, the, the flu like all his companions. But then Carlo got more sick. His parents took him to see the doctor, and Carlo was diagnosed with leukemia. Within hours, Carlo was in a lot of pain. But Carlo never faltered in his kindness or in his faith. I mean, he accepted with a smile. He was, uh, he said to me, ma, 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 I, I, from here I won't uh, come out uh, alive. Uh, he said, I, I die happy because I never did something that would have uh, uh, made the sad Jesus. He, he was always thinking to the others, for example, when the doctor asked him, do you suffer? He used to say, mama, he used to say, there are people who suffer much more than me, always with a smile, never complaining. Carlo died within the week. The death of a child is a terrible thing, especially an only child. But Antonia feels that Jesus was preparing her and her husband 
for this great loss. And Jesus was a little bit prepared, also me and my husband, because of course we we get closer to the faith, we get closer to a sacramental life, and he prepared us to this moment of the the departure of Carlo and, uh, and, and the death of Carlo. He prepared us. Without the faith, I don't know how we could uh, accept the death of a child, a lonely child. Antonia remembers that Carlo's funeral was so full, people had to stand outside of the church. Carlo's family and friends, his classmates, local priests and nuns, and even the poor and homeless of Milan, to whom Carlo would often bring food and blankets with his mother, everyone gathered for Carlo's funeral. Devotion to Carlo spread quickly after his death. Antonia began to receive countless reports from people who said Carlo changed their lives through his witness to the faith. Antonia told me that even their next-door neighbor converted to Catholicism because of Carlo's friendship and example. We really see how God had a design over Carlo. During his life, me and my husband had the idea that probably would have become a priest. Instead, her son Carlo could be named a saint. The Diocese of Milan opened Carlo's cause for sainthood five years after his death. This meant a full investigation into Carlo's life. They interviewed more than 300 witnesses, people who knew Carlo and could speak to his holiness. Everything was perfect. I mean, his life was uh, like a crystal, uh, you know, and the purity of Carlo was really extraordinary. The diocese closed the process, and Carlo was named Servant of God. And all of that documentation about Carlo and his life went to Rome, where the Vatican began an investigation into whether or not Carlo lived a life of heroic virtue. Faith, charity, hope, and then prudence, justice, fortitude, and uh, temperance. To live this virtue means uh, to say, I put God at the first place in my life, and then uh, consequently I love the other, my, 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 my brothers, my sister. This is the secret of sanctitude. I asked Antonia what it was like to raise a child who could one day be officially named a saint in the church. It was really strange for, for me and my husband because the purity of Carlo, the generosity, I never had to, to say something to Carlo. He was so obedient, so nice. Four years after Carlo's death, Antonia gave birth to twins, a boy and a girl and she considers those twins a miracle. I suppose it was a grace of Carlo because I was already 44 years old. Uh, the delivery date was uh, the date of the, the death of Carlo. And although Antonia loves her children, she will admit that they sometimes help her realize just how special Carlo was. Sometimes I have to say, don't do this, don't do that. I mean, I noticed a big, <laughs> terrible difference, <laughs> even if they are my, my children as well. I mean, they are good children because they, for example, they pray the rosary each day, they go to Mass, uh, because, I, of course, of, of the example of Carlo, but they are not like Carlo. There is a 
really a very, very big difference. Carlo has become a patron for young people. Even the Pope quoted Carlo in his latest apostolic exhortation, writing, All are born as originals. Many die as photocopies. Sanctity, we know, is something that is for everybody, but not everybody answers to this call because, unfortunately, they tend to uniform themselves to the world. They forget that they are called to heaven and they don't think about that. The example of Carlo is very simple. I mean, he, he didn't attend any groups or any Catholic, you know, movement. He just was a, a normal a child that uh, attended the mass in his parish. Christ was the center of his life, and uh, it's a very simple way to become saint. I mean, to go to get closer to Jesus through the sacrament and to to become uh, what. In the mind of God, already we are. He used to say, Carlo, I want to be what, in the in the mind of God, I am already to fulfill the project that God had since the eternity for each one of us. There are many, many more favorite segments that we wanted to include in this celebration of CNA Newsroom, but we didn't want to bombard you with a two-hour episode. Still, if you want to hear more of our favorite segments, we've included a full list in our show notes for this episode. There you'll find links to our favorite segments, so you can continue to listen if you want to. And I know we ask you this a lot on this show, but we really do appreciate it when you leave us ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast app. We're at almost 200 ratings on Apple Podcasts, and it would be great to get over that 200 hump. Ratings and reviews are not only super encouraging for us to read— but they genuinely help other new listeners find our show. And if you haven't already, tell other people about CNA Newsroom on social media, in person, however you'd like. We'd really appreciate it. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. Kate and I produce this show, and this week we'd like to thank everyone who has ever agreed to be interviewed on our podcast. We quite literally could not do it without you. Look out for a brand new episode of CNA Newsroom a week from today. God bless and happy listening.